If you enjoy listening to Clinical Conversations, why not become a member of the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh? Our membership provides you with access to the RCPE educational portal, the live evening medical updates, and you have options to view the symposia both in person or online. If you would like to learn more about this, please go to the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh website. Hello everyone, um, my name is Dr. Johnny Bargett and I'm a TMC member from the Clinical Conversations podcast brought to you by the RCPE and tonight I'm delighted to be speaking with Lindsay Alexander who's an occupational therapist who works in Edinburgh and today we're going to be talking about occupational therapy in acute and general medicine. Welcome Lindsay. Thanks for having me. So it's great to have you on the podcast and I'd really like to start by asking, why are we talking about this? Why is this so important? I suppose to get started, I've worked in many clinical areas, but I've spent the last eight and a half years in a front door role and within a medical assessment unit, have a a passion for acute medicine. And I'm also quite keen on on quality improvement. Why is OT so important in these settings and in hospital? And I suppose to get started, regardless of clinical setting or areas of practice, Occupational therapists are holistic practitioners who aim to promote recovery through meaningful activity. And our core business as OTs has always been to ensure that the service user or patient is at the centre of decision making. We work collaboratively with the patient to set goals that are specific to them and ensuring that what's important to that person is at the core of their journey. And we believe that we're all healthiest and happiest when we're doing the things that are meaningful. And I think there's many reasons why this ethos is essential in hospital and the acute sector. We work in a hospital, which is a hugely stressful environment for patients and for their loved ones. And OTs are often mainly, I think, seen as discharge planners. And while we certainly do discharge plan is only a small part of our job, our main focus in hospital is on improving patients' functional abilities and the promotion of independence where possible to allow someone to be discharged home from hospital. So this looks like, how does someone get on and off a chair? How do they get in and out of bed? How do they manage their personal care? How do they manage to make a meal, take their medications? The practical daily tasks that you and I might take for granted. But as OTs, we bring that holistic perspective into our assessments and and when making a discharge plan. In acute medicine, we see such a diverse cohort of individuals who are dealing with a range of issues which affect how they function and how they manage at home. So this could be falls, it could be a new acute illness, or it could be an exacerbation of a chronic condition. With our knowledge and skills, we are able to decipher and advise on how these medical issues impact functional ability and and feed this back to the MDT. I think it's a, it's a well established that in order to provide good quality and effective healthcare, that an, a multidisciplinary team coach is required. And within the hospital, OT is an integral part of this team. Our rules very adaptable. So, for example, we can offer rapid functional and risk assessments to prevent admissions entirely. And there's now a wealth of research on front door OTs and how our risk assessment and clinical skills can support prevention of admission or targeting early intervention 
flow and discharge planning directly from the front door. In our team, we've completed quite a large GI project, which also highlights the benefits of continuity of care from OTs at the front door to downstream wards, which reduces duplication of assessments and therefore workload for colleagues and also reduces length of stay. And we've now started to complete discharge home visits for our patients to provide more of those assessments in a homely setting, but to facilitate timely discharges as well. Where needed, we can also set specific and measurable rehab goals. As I said, we provide risk assessments and are often balancing the needs of the patients, physical and cognitive needs, with the needs of the organisation, which we know is under extreme pressure at the moment. And I think it's important to highlight we don't just focus on packages of care. OTs are good practical problem solvers. And like I say, our core business is promoting independence. So we might actually look at alternative strategies of managing. So different dressing techniques, various pieces of equipment or community services, promoting activity in hospital to maximise functional independence and improve patient outcomes. I think what is also important to highlight is in hospital, we certainly do focus on the short term goals of patients. So what do we need to do in order to facilitate a discharge? But that doesn't mean that their OT input stops or their OT journey ends. So like I've said, goal setting is hugely important, but the longer term goals can often be met by community services. And we're very up to speed with what services are available, what is best, how to refer to these, very often asked for for advice. And I think, you know, we're good supporters of the MDT We quite often find ourselves being asked to support others with difficult conversations, often surrounding discharges with anxious patients and their families who are maybe still concerned about going home despite assessments and medical treatment being finished. And you'd be hard pushed to find an OT that's not happy to have a conversation with you if you wanted to have a chat about a patient. That's a great summary of of how important occupational therapy is within the hospital, but not, not least medicine. What's clear is that the care that you're giving really is patient-centred. One of the things that I'd like to ask is just what what does your average day look like, Lindsay? So this is interesting because when I started to actually brainstorm this, I realised how much I actually have to do in a day. So I have to get to my desk and immediately have something to eat because I'm a bit useless and a bit grumpy if I'm hungry. So that's the first thing I do. And then... Myself and my team check our patient list from the day before. So we see if people have been moved out of the unit and been moved downstream. If they have been, we identify people who we feel would be a short stay and appropriate for our new in-reach service, which I mentioned before, and that aims to provide that continuity of care to reduce length of stay. And then we actively screen all the new patients who are in the ED or in the assessment unit. Depending on how busy that is, that can be up to 65, 70 patients. And we look for specific OT referrals or people that we feel would benefit from OT input. And that encompasses a wide range of of issues. So we would look for things like falls, people that have been admitted because their family are concerned, functional declines, new strokes, and people with maybe a new terminal diagnosis. We then have a morning OT team meeting, which includes the wider OT teams from across the hospital site, just to see how all the teams are doing and if anyone in particular needs help. 
if they do need help, how do we facilitate that? And often our acute medicine daily list is quite big, so we prioritise then who to see first. And this is mainly people that we feel can get away home. Some days it's very difficult to tell and you kind of just have to get started, but we'll certainly try to see everyone who we think would benefit as early intervention and that promotion of activity where someone's medically able is, is best. And that sort of focus and promotion helps set expectations early on and aims to help avoidable deconditioning in hospital. So after we've prioritised about half eight, quarter to nine, we get going. Our assessments go on all day long. We'll likely get more referrals as the day goes on, depending on who comes in and out of the ED or in and out of the medical assessment unit. And there's a constant stream of communication between ourselves, the ward round, our physio colleagues, our nursing team, our medicine of the elderly team, and our home first team. So there's a, there's a lot of discussion that, that goes on. And then we have a multidisciplinary team meeting at midday, so 12 o'clock. And that involves everyone, which is really good and really, really valuable time spent. So it involves consultants, our pharmacist, OT, physio, our MOE team, home first team and nursing. And that's our opportunity to run through all the patients in the unit and to sort of solidify any discharge plans that we do have early on. And we might get more referrals from them. It's a kind of a good sounding board as well. And after that, it's just seeing patients. It's a bit of a juggle, to be honest. It's seeing patients and paperwork, onward referrals, things like that. So the day goes in fairly quickly. It sounds like there's a lot of work, a lot of patient contact there, a lot of patients that you're seeing. On average, how many patients would you be seeing in a shift? Our list recently has been between 20 and 25 people a day. And just so that our listeners know what what an assessment entails, what is your your process, Lindsay? What do you have to do whenever you're assessing someone? So we, I mean, we have a chat with the referrer first or certainly read through the notes just to see what's the cause of admission, what investigations have been done and certainly some results of those and what that might mean for somebody's function. So we're quite up to speed and are very lucky that spend a lot of time answering questions and, and teaching. So you know, somebody who's referred with a sodium of 121 who's been having falls, that might be part of the problem. So we might not prioritise that person. But we generally ask a lot about home, how somebody normally manages. Um, we do a physical assessment. So vision, a visual screen, a cognitive screen, power, range of movement, balance. So and we'll then get someone up. So we'll look at their sitting balance. We'll look at their sit to stand, how they get on off the, the bed, the chair. We'll mobilise the patient. So depending on the, the history that we've taken, depending on how much somebody needs to do, if they don't already have care, for example, we may then go on to do personal care assessments or kitchen assessments, toileting assessments. But like I say, depending on the level of care, that can sometimes differ. And then we would quite often link in with family members or link in with care packages or key workers just to see that we have addressed all the concerns that they've maybe had. So it seems like this is almost part of the comprehensive assessment that your colleagues in Medicines for the Elderly might be achieving. Is that something that you would have a lot of 
overlap with with their team? Or are there any differences that you that you know of that you would you would have between your your two assessments? Um, I think we we work very closely with our medicine of the elderly team, and we have a great kind of communication and dialogue with them. So I would say that there is overlap, but we we really focus on the functional aspect of that person you know how they they manage at home and our our MOE colleagues are great at also asking those questions but I suppose they will do a more in-depth cognitive screen looking at polypharmacy as well discussions with family about specific medical issues which we wouldn't do so we do work with them very closely and sometimes do joint assessments with them which is really beneficial but like I say, there's a pretty good dialogue there for most of the day. And sometimes we'll split up the work. You know, it might be me that phones a family member. But if a member of the MOE team needs to speak about AWI or you know, various other things, DNA, CPR, then they'll have that conversation. So sometimes it's about splitting it up. Who is the most appropriate person? You mentioned home first and hospital at home. And certainly whenever I'm working in the medical department or working in the front door in ED, if I'm seeing a patient who I think that may not need to necessarily come into hospital for any, any mm-hmm. medical intervention, but needs something to help them support to get home, what would your advice be to the healthcare professional that's seeing a patient like this? Mm-hmm. How would you decide on whether or not hospital at home OT or, or home first, if you could talk about what that is, is to help them get home safely and not be admitted to the hospital? Okay. So I suppose my first question would be, you know, do they need a functional assessment? Have you made a risk assessment that means, you know, yes, you're medically happy for them to leave the hospital, but are they mobile? Is it a functional concern or is it a social concern? And sometimes it's both. I think home, our home first practitioners, so the home first ethos we know, but the, our home first practitioners are an excellent link between the community and the hospitals, they have access to the community systems, which is really useful because anything that a care provider writes down about a patient goes on that system, which we don't have access to on our track system. So that's really useful. And they are able to get really essential information very, very quickly, which can help inform you guys in terms of your discharge planning and in terms of you know, your risk assessment and discharging someone directly from the front door. So they'll also refer, you know, and and speak through things that might be more social barriers. So for example, someone attended a few weeks ago whose house had flooded and it wasn't safe for that person to be at home. That person was also not able to coordinate and organise someone to support them with that. So our Home First team did that so that's not what I would call a functional barrier to discharge because the person was independent but it was a social barrier it did stop them from leaving but our home first team got involved in the ED so really early on whereas without them the process used to be that you'd have to probably refer to social work for that and that would take you know x amount of time so yeah and I think from an OT point of view we look at, like I said, that the short-term goals, what do I need to do to support somebody home from the front door? Can they mobilise household distances? Can they transfer? Can they take their medications and get to the toilet? The community services, an individual still does need to have OT goals in order to accept a referral. 
So we often will send people home with equipment, but as you can imagine, we can't always get to somebody's house to see how they use that equipment at home or if that's working for them. And we're trying to do more of that, but we still need to link in with our community colleagues an awful lot to ask them to review those situations at home. That's really helpful just to get an insight into the different challenges that you might face. And I guess what you've really been talking about to my sort of impression is that you've been addressing a person's activities of daily living. Is that, is yeah. that right? And I guess yeah. one of the things that we see in, in medical documentation when someone's admitted to the hospital is independent with ADLs. And I guess that's a useful statement, but it doesn't really go into the depth that, that you would describe. What are the key things that you're looking for in communication from the medical team when they're seeing a patient that help you in your assessment? I think it can be hard because I, I think depending on your situation and who you're seeing, Joe, it's difficult to get a full functional history if you know the person you're seeing is unwell. But any information that you do get is really helpful for us. And it is those things like, is somebody normally independent with their ADLs or does somebody have help at home? Do they walk with an aid at home? And I think that's a really big one for, I mean, that is so helpful. And I think that's a big one for our nursing colleagues as well, because actually nine times out of 10, especially overnight, if the nursing team that are getting that person up for the first time, and it's incredibly helpful for them to be able to look at the notes and say, so-and-so normally mobilizes with a Zimmer frame. Great. I know where they are. I can go and get one of them. I think things that help us build a picture of the individual, do you know, do they live by themselves? Their cognition, would they normally be orientated to the day of the week? Do they take their own tablets? Do you know, it's if you're not sure about a referral, I suppose as well, go and ask your OT because it takes much less time to, to just have a chat through and find out that you maybe don't need us than to make the referral. And we do a lot of digging to discover that we weren't actually needed. So I suppose the other thing is, is if you're not sure, the door's always open, come and ask. That's really helpful. I guess one of the things that we see is that, as you said, you sometimes maybe feel that you're perceived as a, a discharge facilitator, Lindsay. Yeah. I guess it's just something that our listeners could really benefit from your advice and wisdom is just how you can help assess whether a patient actually needs to see you or not. And I guess that you said that you're doing some screening and interested just to get a, a brief overview of how you do that. But also, who can we talk to as medical or maladaptive healthcare professionals to help make that that impression about whether they need to see you or not obviously our nursing colleagues are the go-to I guess what are your thoughts on that yeah your nursing colleagues I mean like I say the door is always open if you're not sure if you need an OT come and ask an OT because they'll be able to tell you very quickly and nobody will you know I, I think like I said you'd be hard pushed to find an OT that isn't willing to sit and have that conversation I think having that open communication and that open dialogue is really important. I'm very lucky where I work, where I've been working there for a long time. People know me and, you know, people often come and find me to say, would, would you see this? Would you not? It's sometimes not so black and white. And I, and I really, you know, I do appreciate that because our role is very adaptable. You know, it's very multifaceted. If we can help by pointing someone in the direction of, well, we think we don't need to see them, but actually, you know, we could refer them on to the falls team. Then that's a useful conversation to have and to just not refer at all because you're worried it might not be, be exactly what we're looking for. Like I say, I think 
NEOT would rather that you came and had a chat with them. But you can make use of all your MDT colleagues, you know, physios, nurses, consultants, because MDT support is just so valuable. Do you know, I do try and encourage as much as possible people to come and speak to us and just have that communication. There's no kind of OT is not really a tick box criteria. It can be multiple different things. So just come and have a conversation with us or find out who your OT is and, and go and have a conversation with them. What you've said it really sums it up quite nicely. And I guess one of the things that I'd like to just get sort of a, an insight into your type of patient that you see. So you mentioned that you see patients that come in with falls, mm. patients that come in with strokes, patients who have mobility issues with their falls. What's your, your more common presentation that you see? And are there any other presentations that are maybe a bit less common, but are, are just as challenging? I think the most common we see are probably older people who have attended with falls or an exacerbation of a chronic condition, which has meant a bit of a stepwise decline in their function. And we do see people obviously as well with acute illnesses and who maybe need a kind of shorter term input. The strokes we see fairly often, I think what we saw less of, but we're now seeing a little bit more of, is people attending with a new diagnosis. So who, who want to spend, you know, their last months at home. So they, they've attended with a general decline and, and on admission, it's been found that they have, you know, metastatic disease. And they want to be at home as soon as possible. So it wasn't as common. It's becoming more frequent. Yeah. And I guess what we're really touching on is, is palliative care. And yeah. How yeah. To facilitate patients getting home in, in that situation. And I imagine you communicate quite often with the palliative care team in helping facilitate these patients to get home to, to have ongoing care at home. What, yeah, what... it happens more frequently now. Um, and we've got an excellent oncology OT team as well who are very kindly always available for advice and, and brainstorming. I guess the things that I'm thinking of people who are breathless who struggle to self-care and may need support with mobility aid what kind of things that that you see can you help patients with are there any most common interventions that you can provide patients to help them in getting home? Yeah, a lot of what we do and what you've touched on is, is equipment equipment based, especially for those that we can turn around from the front door. So you say like you say, breathlessness, pain. So somebody might benefit from a zimmer frame or a different walking aid just to alleviate some of their pain and allow them to get about the house. Community services that will so you know, somebody using that as an example. If you give a new walking aid that that person is not used to and you think, well, hopefully that will only be a short term requirement, you then would refer on to the community services to progress them off the walking aid and to kind of achieve that longer term goal of right now that they're home, we want to progress their mobility back to towards their, their baseline, which was, you know, walking to the shops every other day. I guess what you said, it's all about goal setting as well. and having a conversation about what goals are realistic. Yeah, but what's realistic and what's important. And sometimes, you know, the two don't marry up actually, but you do have to have that conversation. 
and some people you know will have an, that acute admission to hospital and and they'll leave with it with a new baseline which can be difficult for folk to get their head around doesn't mean that they don't then get the kind of consideration for longer term goals they just might look a bit different which might be more focused of of in, independence around the home environment rather than getting out and about communication is so important in this and with patients and their families and their care providers in yeah. as well, their carers, if they have any. We, we've covered so much, and I guess I'd just like to wrap things up now, Lindsay, and just sort of really touch on, on what we've, we've discussed. We've talked about, you know, obviously occupational therapy and its role in the hospital and acute medicine, what an average day uh, looks like in the role of an occupational therapist like yourself, and what are the key things that, we want to know in the MDT meetings to help you in your in your job and what the healthcare professionals can can do in their in their screening or their their functional assessment. And we've touched a little bit on hospital at home and, and palliative medicine as well. Is there anything else that you you wanted to talk about or any take home messages for the listeners before we we finish and conclude tonight? I think my one thing that I would say to people is get to know your OT. Get to know who they are and how to get in touch with them. Talk to them. Again, you'll not find an OT that's not willing to have a conversation with you and have a chat about a patient. I think, you know, we might not always be the person that you need, but again, I think MDT peer support is so valuable. You know, no matter what your job title or what your level of training is, it's incredibly valuable to have that. So, yeah, just get to know who your OTs are. Great stuff. It's been an absolute pleasure, Lindsay, to talk with you tonight. And I'm sure our listeners, the Clinical Conversations podcast, will enjoy this episode. Yeah, it's 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 been a pleasure. So once again, thank you very much, Lindsay. And um, if you have any feedback for Lindsay or for the podcast, then um, you can leave your comments through the usual channels. Once again, Lindsay Alexander, an occupational therapist working in, in Edinburgh, talking about her role in occupational therapy in the front door of the hospital. Thank you. Thanks.